0: coming up on this week's podcast. He says, set apart Christ as Lord from the beginning point. You know, not when it happens, but don't get yourself into a situation where you haven't set apart Christ as Lord. That's part of your identity. And if you don't know who your identity is, you're just kind of going with the flow. Instead of saying, this is who I am in Christ. This is how I'm going to take a stand. And if this happens, I'm going to do this. It is preparing your heart ahead of time. Stay tuned for more. And welcome to another New Hope Chapel podcast. Located in Arnold, Maryland, New Hope Chapel is a vibrant church committed to biblically based teaching, often focusing on discovering the Jewish roots of the faith. You can find out more about our church at newhopechapel.org. Now, here's Justin Hibbard with today's message. Well, I don't know if you guys remembered, a few years ago, uh, Tom Cruise came into the spotlight again, as he does sometimes, and he came out with this big claim that he is a Scientologist, and he's embracing the Church of Scientology, which made everyone say, what in the world is Scientology? Scientology. And so we all speculated and it was all over the news and every type of news and entertainment channel was always talking about this Tom Cruise decision to embrace Scientology. And there was all this speculation, some of it true and some of it false, but it's hard to speculate about something when to get information about the church, you have to pay more money. So it seems to us like a a very obvious scam that Tom Cruise has wholly uh, bought into and to be a Scientologist. And it reminds me, of what it must have been like for the early Christians of the time, the type of speculation that was going on in a very different way. Because Peter is writing to Christians, and Christianity has only been about around for a couple of decades. So in the grand scheme of things, it's fairly new. And you have two groups of people that are embracing this new religion called the way. One of them are the Jewish people. The Jewish people who've always embraced the, the Jewish faith and everything that comes with it, some of them are now saying, wait, wait a second, I'm still, in, I'm still Jewish, but I believe that the Messiah that is prophesied throughout scripture has come and I am embracing him. And so for them, they were probably, there was a lot of speculation about these Jewish believers and these people who are following the way and who believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But I think the real population that Peter is writing to are those from the Roman society, the Roman Empire. Those people who for so long had embraced uh, the Roman religions and the Roman way of life. And the Roman re- way of life was, it, it, it's, a pretty li- it's a pretty tough life. I mean, for one, they were in- involved with all sorts of polytheistic gods. They Their part of worship includes going and having, pro- and having sexual relations with prostitutes at temples. Uh, there was pedophilia going on. There was all sorts of disgusting stuff that was part of this Roman way of life. And so you can imagine if someone says, wait a second, I'm going to stop doing this and I'm going to follow the way, which includes one God and one Savior, and I'm going to give up these things like eating meat sacrificed to idols and sexual immorality. You can imagine the people around this person saying, whoa, whoa, whoa what's this going on? And you know, the thing is, they didn't have Wikipedia during that time to tell them exactly what the way is about. So there, there was probably all sorts of speculation. And Julie touched on this a couple of weeks ago that they, it included they were... Um, they were blamed for incest because they called each other brothers and sisters. Cannibalism because they practiced the Lord's Supper. I mean, these are they just did not understand. And so talk about a, a people that was misunderstood. That was the Christians of this time when um, Peter is writing. Not only that, but a lot of them would face horrific deaths. They were used as torches for parties. They were set on fire. They were put... Uh, kids, mothers, women men, old people, they were, they were put in these rings with gladiators where they didn't stand a chance. They were put in, li- uh, in rings with lions, with spectators. This was the Roman form of entertainment. So when we think of our, our cities in our world that kind of are uh, base and disgusting and worldly, we can think of you know Amsterdam or uh, I don't know, think of some others, but they have nothing on the Roman Empire. We have nothing on the Roman Empire. And this was, this was the worst of societies, I would, I would venture to say, the most base of societies. And scholars have said that many reasons that Christianity was so successful in the Roman Empire was because people felt the filth that they were involved in and embraced the goodness that Christianity brought. It was like a breath of fresh air for them. And so Peter is writing to these people who have embraced this way of life at their own peril or may soon come at their own peril and that is what he's talking about about being a living hope. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to leave off we're going to start where Julie left off and we're going to start with verse 8 and go to the end of the chapter here. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Peter chapter 3, we'll read this. And Terry, I was thinking as you were praying I'm like well, she's pretty much preaching my sermon, so I think I can keep this short. <laughs> pretty much everything you said was exactly my points today. So anyways, 1 Peter 3, verse 8. That's right, absolutely. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because of this, you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good; they must speak, they must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats, do not be frightened, but in your hearts revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who may speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better, if it is God's will, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And what a fascinating passage this is, and it has one of my favorite verses in the Bible, 1 Peter 3 15 and 16, a verse that I memorized in high school. In your hearts, set apart or revere Christ as Lord, and always be prepared to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who may speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. I love what, Paul, what Peter is saying here. He's saying, look, people are going to misunderstand you. He's talking to people who are going to be misunderstood, misrepresented, blamed for things, talked about things in a negative way. People that don't, aren't even trying to understand who they really are. They're just kind of name-calling and everything like that. And Jesus was one that experienced things just like this. And Peter and and Julie had brought up a couple of weeks ago that we should not be ones that try to always defend ourselves. We don't need to do that. But that we just need to focus on doing what is right. And that's the point I think Peter is making here. First of all, he he says, people should notice the hope that you have. And if they don't notice the hope that we have, then I think we're missing a big point. If our lives look the same as the world's lives, then there is no hope. They're not going to notice a difference. Um, I work with a guy who is uh, one of the meanest guys I know. And he's very mean. and He's mean-spirited. And people come to him for help. And if he doesn't like you, he makes you know that he does not like you. He's very impatient. He's very abrasive. Uh, uses foul language, things like this. So this is something I see on a, you know, and in administrative meetings, we talk about what, what needs to be done. And this person, and so they'll say, well, we need to go to this person, this particular person, and we need to help, have him help us solve a problem. And then the administration's like, ah, eh, let's not do it then, <laughs> you know? And it's like, here's this guy that's working, and they, they want to avoid him at all costs. And I think to myself, how sad that is, you know? And, and I have to remember to be different than that. And I, have to be, and I have to remember to be patient and one that works with people. And even though at times it's easy to lose my patience to be one that just loves people and is patient with them and demonstrates a difference. So when there are people talking a certain way, telling certain jokes, uh, acting a certain way, we ought to be different. And people ought to say to us, why is it that you are so joyful? Why is it? It doesn't mean everything is great in our lives. It doesn't mean that we're always bubbly and happy, happy. But why is it that you have this hope, that you can go through the things that you go through and still hold on to hope? How is that possible? People should be asking those questions. And if they're not asking those questions, then we ought to take a look at our lives and say, are we living with the hope of Christ? Are we exhibiting ourselves differently? Peter says to set apart or revere Christ as Lord. To me, that, that kind of tells me that the beginning of the battle is not when it happens, but it happens in my heart and it happens before my day begins. That I have to set apart Christ as Lord before the day, the work day, the driving day ever begins. Because let's face it, there's always going to be someone that cuts you off on the road. There's always going to be a, a co-worker that becomes incompetent and does something dumb. And we, if you have children... Somebody's going to throw something and hit someone and do something and yell and scream. And he says, set apart Christ as Lord from the beginning point. You know, not when it happens, but don't get yourself into a situation where you haven't set apart Christ as Lord. That's part of your identity. And if you don't know who your identity is, you're just kind of going with the flow. Instead of saying, this is who I am in Christ. This is how I'm going to take a stand. And if this happens, I'm going to do this. It is preparing your heart ahead of time. And then he says, always be prepared to give that, re- that answer for the reason of the hope that you have. I really like this because I'm not someone that goes around and, and really, um, uh, I'm not like, I don't know, I don't go around saying, hey, I'm a Christian or, you know, or praise the Lord all the time, anything like that. So a lot of my evangelism, and I think for the, for the early Christians who are afraid of persecution, Their opportunity was this. Their opportunity was the time when someone comes up to them and says, hey, why is it that you have this hope? Why are you different? And Peter says that's your opportunity to tell them about your faith in Christ. That's the opportunity to tell them about the hope that you have. So instead of saying, "Eh, I don't know, I guess I'm just different, that is your opportunity to really tell them the gospel. But he says to do it with gentleness and respect. Because I imagine that the people that were coming up to these Christians were not necessarily coming up in a very nice way. Maybe they were coming up and being like, why aren't you a Roman anymore? Why don't, you, why don't you do these things anymore? Why, you know, and, and those who have been in a worldly lifestyle, I know that that sometimes they have some backlash from their friends who are like, hey, why aren't you doing this anymore? Are you abandoning us now? What's the big deal? And he says, look, that's, you could be... You're being attacked and you don't need to attack them. You don't need to say, I'm sick of you. You guys are idiots or anything like that. You can just say, I am changed. I'm a different person. I have a new hope. This is what the Lord has done. And to live out that life. And that's the ultimate thing because he says, look, keep that clear conscience so that when people are slandering you and talking bad behind your back, you don't need to defend yourself. Because as long as you're doing what the Lord wants you to do, and you're doing good, then you're in the perfect place to be, and you live out that life. So I love this verse. I love what what Peter says here, and I think it's it's so apropos even today in our society. I, I think especially of Tim Tebow. He is um, one of one of my favorite characters in sports. His Tebow section, and um, and I, what I really like about him is you know, is that he is someone I think really exemplifies this. You know, he was on The Daily Show uh, maybe a few weeks ago. And, you know, The Daily Show is oftentimes they have a lot of crass humor in their base and they, you know, they make fun of uh, conservatives and, and sometimes make fun of Christians and things like that. And here's Tim Tebow, a Christian, a son of a missionary family. And, I thought, he, I thought he really handled himself very well in that interview. Not someone that would stoop down to their humor, but just said, hey, he knew who he was. And when you watch him play football, he knows who he is. And he's not afraid to put Bible verses uh, there on his eye black or anything like that. And he plays with real heart. And, when, and I remember there was a game maybe a year or two ago when everything fell apart. They lost after being sort of undefeated. And he went up to the mic and said, it's my fault. I need to do better and had an incredible work ethic. So even while he's moved up to the NFL and people like, well, he's not very good, and this and that, and this and that, he's really letting his work ethic speak for itself. And I think it's not going to be long before he sees a starting position, just because of who he is and the leader that he is. And that just reminds me of that. Well, I'm reading this book called um, Brain Rules, and they're talking about like, what, how the brain handles capacities and things like that, and what it can handle, and so I, it said like after ten minutes, it can only handle so much, and you have to kind of switch gears, so I figured a little humor here 're going to get into we 're going to get into a, a difficult part of scripture here. Because Peter sort of switches gears in verse 18 here. And I want to kind of talk about this and talk about what I think Peter is saying by these, um, this difficult passage. But if you take a look at verse 18, he says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. And after being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. So when um, Steve Steve asked me if I would be willing to take this week, and I said, I said sure. And, and I'm looking through First Peter three fifteen and sixteen. And I'm like really excited because those are my like some of my favorite verses. And then I read this, and I'm like, <laughs> what in the world, you know? Like, and, and I really had to think about this and do some studying on it. But here's what I think, and you're welcome to disagree with me. I know it's going to be a little bit out there, but I want to explain why I feel the way why Peter is talking about what he's talking about here and what this means. First of all, he mentions Noah. So we, we can look into Genesis chapter 6 and we can look at what God says to Noah about what's going on on the earth or what God is feeling here. In verse 11 it says, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. A pretty depressing passage of scripture that's going to talk about the um, upcoming destruction of the flood. But then we get to verse 1. If we look at verse 1, we see something, probably one of the weirdest passages in scripture. Because it says this, when human beings began to increase in number on the earth and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married uh, any of them they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with humans forever, for they are mortal. Their days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and, after, and also afterwards when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown." Well, what a weird passage of scripture that is, is it not? And um, it was a few years ago, I decided that I was going to read the Book of Enoch. Now, the Book of Enoch is an apocryphal book. So it's not in your Bible, but if you have a Catholic Bible with you, it's in that Bible. And, and what that basically means is that when the, the church fathers were forming the, the canon of scripture, the canon means standard, They were saying to say that this is inspired because of this, this, and this, and there is no question to its authoritative context and to its content and all of that stuff. Uh, Enoch was that question. And on one hand, you had people that said, you know, the book of Enoch surely predates Christ. The earliest manuscripts we have are a few hundred years before Christ, but we don't have anything in Hebrew. We're not for sure that Enoch actually wrote this. We don't know. There's a lot of questions about this. And on the other hand, you had people that said, Enoch is actually quoted in the book of Jude. So Enoch should be included in the Old Testament. So lots of questions about this. And I'm more on the conservative side where I think that if you're dealing with a standard of inspiration of scripture, that standard ought to be very limited. But to say that it doesn't mean that just because something is not in Scripture does not mean it's true. After all, we read Max Lucado, C.S. Lewis, and all these others, and there may be some or all uh, of what they say is true, but it's not inspirational. In other words, what we do is we hold it up to the standard of inspiration, up to the canon of Scripture, that if anything falls short of that canon or does not agree with Scripture, we say, that is not true. So the book of Enoch, though, I find very fascinating. You can find it online. It's a very interesting book. And I just want to give you a a very brief synopsis of the book of Enoch because I think this has something to do with what Peter is saying. And I'll explain why. First of all, whoops, let me scroll through here just a little bit. First of all, the book of Enoch is about Enoch. No surprise there. And he he begins the book, or the book is about him, and it's talking about what's going on at this time. It's actually talking about what, what Genesis six verses one through three or four was talking about that we just read. First of all, he says that there are these beings called the Watchers. And the Watchers are fallen angels. And the Watchers are, are basically demons, those who fell from heaven. And they are roaming the earth. Now I don't know if they had wings or what they look like or anything like that, but we do know but they but here he's talking about these demons that we all agree exist on the earth but these had physical forms to them. And so what these demons did, they did two things. Number one, they, they taught people sorcery and how to manipulate elements in order to get their way. And secondly, they took for themselves women and, and married them and slept with them, and the women produced giants. And the giants are called the Nephilim. So on one hand, you have the watchers who are, the, are these fallen angels. And on the other hand, you have these Nephilim, who are, who are the giants. So it's kind of filling in the gaps of what's going on in Genesis chapter 6 that we read about. Now, there are a lot of talks about, okay, well, what are these giants? Are these, you know, if you read, the, if you read when um, the spies go to Canaan, and, you, and they come back the report, and they say, those guys are Nephilim, right? Well, that's a little bit of an exaggeration because there were no Nephilim on the boat, on the ark. So we know that Nephilim ceased to exist after the flood. The giants, and, and some have argued that Goliath was a Nephilim. He was nine feet tall. But Enoch makes no mistake in saying that we're not dealing with giants who are nine feet tall. It's more like 90 feet tall. And could you imagine like a hybrid of angelic and human I don't know how you give birth to that something like that but I don't know how you give birth anyway. So it's <laughs> It's um so these giants and and when it says the men of renown many scholars believe that these giants are actually the titans that the Greeks and the Romans adopted as their own gods that these were the men of old these men of renown these giants and um and so in the, in the mythology that that we know of in the Greek and Roman culture, these, they're actually referring to these real beings called the Nephilim, though they're referring to them in a God sense, and even though they uh, don't, do not exist. Well, anyways, the Nephilim were attacked, uh, not attacked, but chained up by the men of the time because they were afraid of them, these giants there. And the, and the story goes in the Book of Enoch that the Nephilim rebelled against mankind and began, began slaughtering them. And so Enoch at this time is in hiding. He's hiding from the Nephilim because he's afraid for his life. While that's happening, these watchers, the fallen angels, are suddenly repent for what they've done. Here they've been involved in this, uh, this sin here on the earth, and they know that God is going to destroy them. They've tasted of heaven, and they say, like, we have made the biggest mistake we could ever make. And they want to reconcile with God. Well, they don't have access to the Lord anymore. That door has been shut. But they go to the person who is the most godliest man of that time. They go to Enoch. And they say, Enoch, can you ask God to reconcile on our behalf and bring us back into heaven? And Enoch's a little unsure about it and finally says he will. He is brought up into heaven, and and the descriptions of heaven are amazing. Very Revelation-esque, Ezekiel-esque, Daniel-esque, you know, very beautiful descriptions of heaven. And as he is, and he describes God, he calls him the Ancient of Ancients, and he always refers to the Anointed One at his right hand. So even though we have question about the, uh, the authority of this text, or who wrote it, or how old it actually is, it is... It's very uh, messianic in its nature, and it predates, predates Jesus' uh, coming on earth, his incarnation. So as Enoch is in heaven, he asks God, he says, there are the watchers, and they want to reconcile and apologize, and they want you to take, us, take them back, and God is very angry with them. And he says, first of all, he says, what they have done is absolutely wicked. And he says, the Nephilim will be destroyed. They are disgraceful. These giants are disgraceful. And then he says that he will not, he will not take back the fallen angels. But he said, what I will do is I will destroy their bodies, but I will allow their souls to roam and haunt the earth until the final days of destruction. So right there, it brings up demonology and all this other stuff that we could talk about and these and and, and things of that nature. Well, how is God going to orchestrate this type of destruction? He explains that it will be done through the flood. That the flood, and and here's Enoch, who is Noah's grandson, our grandfather. Noah will be the one that um, is saved from the flood and will experience this time of destruction. So in 1 Peter, when it says that he preached to the spirits uh, who he was patient with, during the time of waiting for that flood, waiting for that destruction, I believe he's talking about these fallen angels, these spirits who are roaming the earth. Now, there may be, there may be a lot of different other interpretations, but that's my interpretation of it. And that, God, that Jesus was waiting patiently for them and waiting for that time of destruction and still dealt patiently with them. Now, when it says that he preached to the spirits who were in prison, this is a very, it's very interesting because the word in prison, who are in prison, are, are also can be uh, translated as a watch, like a watch of time. It could be, I don't know for sure, but it could be that what, what, Paul, what Peter is actually calling them is he's calling them the watchers. But yet, the same word for watch has to do with prison. It's really interesting. But nonetheless, when it says that Jesus preached to these spirits... I don't think he's evangelizing to them. I think he's, he's saying to them, look, look what's done. And Jesus preached to the spirits on his time on earth. When he tells the spirits to leave people, to stop possessing them, when he says, when he says to Satan, you shall not tempt the Lord your God, when he, when he fights the devil, he is preaching to the spirits. But ultimately, the biggest preaching that he does comes just through his actions, through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, through his ascension. And I think the point is, of, of all this, the, the point is, is that he's saying, look, if anyone was misunderstood, if anyone was faced persecution, it was Jesus. He faced it in heaven. He faced it with the spirits. He faced it you know, as Satan and the angels are saying, uh, we're better than you, we want to be like you. He faced it when Adam and Eve said, we want to be like you. We know better than you. He faced it when he came to his own and his own did not receive him, did not even try to understand him, did not even try to sympathize with him, did not try to see what the miracles... I mean, talk about a very frustrated man. I'm sure he had his share of like wanting to pull his hair out and say, why is it that you don't believe? It's written plainly in the scriptures. And then come to find out here he is. he is, he is beaten, he is put on a cross because these people refuse to understand him. He faces persecution, he faces death, but the story is not written there because he, he rose from the dead. And the preaching that he does is just simply, I come to do the work my father told me to do. How many times did he say that over and over? I'm just going to do what my father told me to do. And so we ought to take comfort in that because what, what, um, what Peter is telling us, I think, not only about Jesus, but also about Noah. Here's someone that's building a boat in the middle of a desert when they've never really seen rain before. Could you imagine how people ridiculed him and did not try to understand him or anything like that? And he, he just did what he was told to do. And so when the time of the rain came, he didn't have to argue with them. He didn't have to say, well, I'll prove you wrong. The time of the rain proved him right. When Jesus rose from the dead, he was proven right. And so he says, you know, you're not baptized by water. You don't have that life, that, that spiritual life through water only. You have it through the Holy Spirit. Because by him, you can live, you can do what the Lord wants you to do. So I, I take great encouragement from this because... Um, Peter is really encouraging me he is saying look you don't have to defend yourself you don't have to fight with the world I think sometimes we get caught up in what the world is doing and and it really makes us angry and it makes us frustrated as Christians and there's a point in time where we need to speak out about that but ultimately the best thing that we can do is just to live out our faith day by day and in the end the Lord will vindicate those who follow him Thank you for listening to today's podcast. We hope it was a blessing to you. New Hope Chapel is a vibrant ministry in Arnold, Maryland. We are a Christ-centered church with biblically-based teaching focused on the Jewish roots of the faith and committed to helping each person discover and use their spiritual gifts. If you're in the area, we would love for you to come and visit. You can find out more information about our church at newhopechapel.org. Subscribe to the New Hope Chapel podcast on iTunes And you'll get the next podcast in your sleep.